0: Welcome to Episode 211 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe & Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. Uh, our guest interview today is with two Cyberscoop uh, reporters, Chris Bing and Patrick Howell O'Neill, uh, who had two very good articles in about the last week, uh, uh, one Uh, I think breaking the news that uh, the uh, uh, Senate Judiciary Committee is looking at a uh, a going dark bill uh, and the other digging deep into the Kaspersky outing of slingshot which uh uh chris and uh patrick uh, are persuasively uh, arguing was a socom uh, uh tool for identifying terrorists and uh, uh neutralizing them in the long run and, uh um, so uh welcome chris uh, who's here in the studio patrick is remote uh, uh pleasure to have you here Thanks for having us, Stuart. Uh, and uh, for the news roundup, we've got Jennifer Quinn off the chair of the firm's class action practice, to talk about uh, autonomous cars. And Brian Egan, uh, uh, the partner in our international practice, formerly with the National Security Council, uh, which today gets uh, John Bolton as its uh, principal advisor, right? Uh, Exciting! Big day for the yeah, National Security day. Council. Uh, okay. And also uh, uh, with the uh, State Department, uh, we've got Nick Weaver on the line from Berkeley. Uh, hi, Nick. Hello. And I'm Stuart Baker, uh, formerly with NSA and DHS, and holding the record for returning to step out to practice law more times than any other lawyer. Let's jump right into the autonomous car stuff, because we've now had two deaths, and I have I have the view now that uh um after all the talk about how this was going to be safer in the long run for you know on the on average for people uh and therefore should be encouraged even though there were bound to be some errors I uh, I don't think that's the way these are things are playing out uh, um we had one uh, case where a woman with a bicycle was hit uh, coming out of the shadows and crossing the uh, um the street at an unmarked uh, crossing. And then, uh, uh, kind of even more troubling, uh, that was an Uber uh, uh, case, this one, uh, the Tesla case, the car seems to have just rammed right into an abutment or a a lane divider, right, Uh, and uh, uh, wiped out the the car and the driver. Uh, um, uh, Two different reactions. Uber settled that case. In a nanosecond, uh, uh, Tesla wrote a open blog post about the accident, a uh, short one. Um, my sense on this is now that we actually see people dying, we have a natural human uh, uh, question about how did they die, and the way they died is not... The sort of thing we understand: somebody wasn't paying attention. They hit the back of a car. Uh, they lost control of the car. It was the car is driving along and it just drove into the abutment. That's what it looks like.
1: All right. Well, I mean, these, these incidents raise some kind of big questions, including about you know whether or not uh, traditional liability uh, paradigms. Can or should apply in these circumstances. Uh, I mean, the first question you asked me, Stuart, uh, when we were talking about this offline was whether or not the Uber settlement was a smart move. Uh, yeah. And I think the answer is unequivocally yes uh you know according to the reports the pedestrian was not at fault and i think you know surprise some people may be very cynical about these things but i think a lot of companies really do try to do the right thing and in this case it appears that that's what uber did now it also has well, they the, took
0: liability right but i guess they, they kind of had to right
1: right <clears throat> i mean you know based on all the reporting there's very little to su- suggest there was uh, some contributory fault of some kind by the pedestrian right and uh for them, this is kind of a very tricky moment, right? The, the trickle of adverse publicity that would be associated with ongoing litigation, especially, you know, the plaintiff's lawyers are all out there trying to jockey for position oh, in yes. this new terrain and, and make a name for The discovery would
0: be ugly. Right?
1: <clears throat> of nascent, uh, very sensitive technology that they wouldn't want disclosed. And, you know, they need to have state and local jurisdictions actually let them do these test driving programs, and adverse publicity is not. What they they want here, and applying the old maxim of bad facts make bad law, this is not the test case that you want to use to hammer out the respective liabilities and obligations of uh, the you know the manufacturers or operators of these car, uh, autonomous vehicles and and pedestrians. Okay, now the Tesla uh, situation is a little more complicated, um, and it shows the challenges that uh, that arise when you're looking at a situation where you have this middle zone between an autonomous vehicle and the car in that case, which was on, you know, autopilot, which is sort of perceived to be this very sophisticated system. Um, Now, according to Uber, you know, you may sort of joke that it was insensitive, but in fact, their post suggests that there is a mechanism in place to remind people to keep their hands on the wheel um, so that if there is some sort of... um, you know, performance issue with respect to the automatic system that they can regain you know, can control. I, can I
0: Can I express some cynicism about that? Uh, it's like the, the automatic seatbelt things. It's like this naggy thing. Put your hands on the wheel, put your hands on the wheel, put your hands on the wheel that is designed to make sure that if there's a, a, an accident, it's your fault.
1: Right, but I think it also is supposed to intend, to, you know, sort of. Uh, it's supposed to provide you a reminder that the car is not in fact autonomous and not billed as such, right? And so that you can't abdicate responsibility for paying attention to what happened. And it's not clear that that's what happened here. There are some very disturbing reports in the news that, in fact, the driver had complained about the performance of the system. In this particular spot where the accident Well, and in if fact you can occurred. see how it
0: would, would happen. There, there, there was sort of this uh, divider to the left, the, the lane divider, and there was a, a, a lane marker for <clears throat> people who were going left, which of course moved off to the left, and then a lane marker for people who were staying in their lane, which continued on, and the one that continued on was a little vague. Uh, and there's you know I'm jumping to conclusions but there's every reason to think that the car just assumed that the left-hand lane was the uh that the the, the uh, marker that was moving off to the left was its left-hand lane which was not true and, you know, and right it's in- worse okay
2: uh at least one <clears throat> other tesla owner seems to have verified this behavior at that particular point and for all this talk about Tesla Autopilot not being autonomous, it effectively is marketed that way just because of the name. GM is much smarter. Their system of basically the same capabilities is called Super Cruise.
0: Yeah, if I if, and if I, I have to say, if, if there was one place I would expect um, to be uh, the autonomous driving to work. It's stop and go traffic on 101 going south. Uh you know it's it's just um it, it ought to be able to stay in its lane and not hit the car in front of it. But that's
1: different than traditional cruise control, which is how yes. the other thing is marketed as kind of an enhanced cruise control. But but to see, I think that this raises interesting issues, right? So so this question of was the road adequately maintained for the car to perform? Um, they're, the automakers are, are. It's unlikely that they're going to be able to push off liability onto the sort of interstate highway system or some right. l- toll road <laughs> operator for not maintaining lines, right? But so what is the standard to which these cars are supposed to be built? In other words, you know, if, if the lines are not maintained at all, are they miraculously supposed to still work? You know, all that kind of needs to be worked out and, and figured out.
0: Um, but I, but I, I, I do think that the natural human interest in what went wrong, if somebody died, what went wrong is going to produce a whole lot of answers that um, are bad for the companies that are making these cars because we're going to find a different kind of mistake from the ones that we're used to people dying from.
1: Right, and, and it's also uh, fair to say that the, the statistical approach um, that Tesla took in its, uh, in its blog post is one that we are not used to. It's not a frame that we're used to applying to these accident type situations. So, for example, you no, imagine. No, I, a I mean, whirl- wait, one
0: might even call it tone deaf. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't
1: know that I would go that far because it, it in fact, probably is true statistically that, yeah. that, that it's safer, okay? But, you know, what happens when, you know, you think about that terrible Canadian hockey team accident, right? So, is the tractor ta- trailer, if it's autonomous and it perceives a bus in front of it, Okay, is this what is its guidance system supposed to do? Is it supposed to have the tractor trailer drive off a cliff so that just that one guy dies, or hit the bus? Right. Sort of statistically, it's better to drive off, have the tractor trailer drive off the cliff. But if you're the tractor trailer driver who bought that tractor trailer, you know, cab from the 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 manufacturer's obligation is to you. Right. Right. You spent the money to have a thing that does a certain way. So the whole frame is just. of our traditional way of looking at these things is, is in flux and, and maybe not as well suited to, um, you know, the Silicon Valley kind of approach. Well, you know? if, I, if
0: I really believed that those uh, trolley car uh, uh, scenarios were serious problems, I would expect that the companies would solve them the way Tesla seems to have solved its problem, which is by forcing the driver to make the choice. By the way, if you are in a position where you uh, have a choice between killing yourself and killing uh, 20 people, what do you want the autonomous car to do? uh, choose A or B, uh, and then if you end up killing 20 people, uh, uh, they'll all say, well, he, he chose that, uh, uh, so right. don't blame discoverable. us. discoverable. Yeah, exactly. Okay, uh, uh, all right, uh, uh, moving on to another company that's just taking abuse, uh, um, Grindr, uh, and I don't know, uh, Nick, if, if, um, if I'm right about this, but it looks to me as though the... The thing that they're getting accused of the uh, uh, security violation was kind of a lame violation. Yes, they did not encrypt stuff that uh, uh, about location of users but of course, the whole point of the app, as I understand it is to to find out who around you might be available uh, and so it 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 was it sounded like a uh, a security researcher found a theoretical flaw, but not one that was going to be a real problem. And then, of course, um, uh, on top of that, uh, there was a disclosure that they were sending their HIV status of their uh, customers, along with all their other data, uh, to some people that they were mostly using for uh, uh, improving their app. Um, And again, sounded to me as though maybe it made a better headline than uh, an actual scandal.
2: I think it's a little bit more serious than you portray because um, Grindr markets itself as it's a secure platform and all your traffic is encrypted, etc., etc. So a Grinder user around you can find you, but not somebody else. So that's kind of sloppy. I guess we I guess um, I,
0: we didn't quite say uh, uh, grinder is Tinder for gay men. So uh, there is some uh, kind of sensitivity in and in a fair amount of uh, headline value in almost anything to do with grinder.
2: Yes, and the uh, disclosure of HIV status is particularly sensitive within that community. So it is something of a betrayal of trust for their customer base and so they might suffer for it in the marketplace just simply because it is part of the trust they need to establish with their customers
0: yeah although again it's like that you're asked this and the question is do you want to include this in your profile so you are making it widely available uh but you, you have some sense of control. I know more or less who's going to be looking at this and why they would find it relevant. Um, uh, but it is, it, it, it's not as though they got this information from the doctors and disclosed it. These, these are things that people affirmatively included in their profiles.
2: So as I said, it's probably not legal in terms of risk, but it does have a reputational risk in that community yes
0: now I, I I have to say i I've I read an uh, a long uh, list of questions thirteen questions uh, f- uh, from two senators uh Blumenthal and Markey to the interim CEO of grinder, asking them all sorts of when did you stop beating your uh, husband uh, questions i <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, and they kind of I, I feel like they totally buried the lead in the address of the interim CEO uh, which is Wan Chai Hong Kong it turns out this is a um, uh, grinder is owned by a Chinese company uh, bought it uh, uh, in the waning days of the uh, uh uh, Obama administration because there is no way that uh, the purchase would have been approved, in my view, in the Trump administration because of the change of tone in um, uh But 13 questions about this and they never asked once um, is this data going to China? <laughs> uh, Chinese 702.
2: And that's the real problem with these services is you're dependent on the other not being able to use the information um, thanks to don't ask don't tell the blackmail ability of that information is reduced but there's still probably conservatives in that data set who'd be blackmailable like oh say Mike Pence's bunny rabbit um, yeah,
0: who's deeply closeted that, it's true
2: <laughs> yes um, and so that is actually a national security concern.
0: Yeah. Yes, it is. I, I, absolutely, uh, 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 knowing everybody or everybody who's in the market and gay uh, uh, in the United States um, uh, is bound to be useful if you're the uh, if you're Chinese intelligence uh, uh, and. Uh, for Markey and Blumenthal not to notice that or ask a question about it just shows how much uh, our current Russia fixation, uh, at least on the Democratic side of the aisle, has distorted our sense of uh, uh, what countries we have to be nervous about.
3: I don't know. I think, yeah, I I think, think the we, Congress is pretty focused on China and big data, though. I mean, I think that's a, a pretty bipartisan issue at this point. The U.S.-China Security Commission is a joint yeah. uh, bipartisan commission. I, They're I just, concerned about I it. I just
0: would have thought when somebody was typing the address in for the interim CEO, yeah. they might have said, huh, that's kind of funny. Mm. Uh, but no. Nope. Uh, uh, and do you agree with me that, uh, uh, that, that that could not possibly have gotten past this serious?
3: Well, I, I think it's an interesting question whether it got past the last Cepheus or not. Whether, oh, whether they even asked? Yeah, I don't uh, know. Ah, ah,
0: okay, well, maybe there'll be a uh, uh, an inquiry by on the part of uh, the uh, Cepheus into that. Uh, um, continuing the uh, uh, administration's uh, surprisingly gay-friendly uh, policy. Uh, all right. Um, I, so it looks like there's another IoT botnet we've known about that for a while Um, but it has been surprisingly quiet and now uh, uh, it looks as though the uh, creators of the botnet are starting to take it out for a spin uh, to test against some banks Uh, uh, what do you make of this why banks
2: that's the thing that we've We're basically now living in the world of DDoS for hire. You want to DDoS somebody, you pay through whatever, and that is off the net. Um, And they're using these IoT botnets and the like. And this has been the situation now for a few years. So we don't have enough data to answer the real interesting question. Why are they targeting banks?
0: Yeah, you're right. There are two possibilities that I can think of, uh, maybe three. One, they just want to try it against a pretty hard target. Second, um, uh, they're doing it uh, uh, because banks do depend on real-time communications with their customers, um, although they're not by no means the most dependent. Or uh, three, uh, uh, they're uh, uh, launching this as an attack, as a distraction, for efforts to uh, get an APT uh, uh, working inside a bank. Distraction makes the most
2: sense um, because if you, or blackmail, pay us X Bitcoin or you'll keep getting DOSed. Because if you just want to demo your botnet, go DOS Krebs. <laughs> He's the one you want to DOS to show that, uh, hey, you actually have a capable botnet because he is a hard target.
0: Yeah. So let me ask you one other question uh and this is the, this is I think for um uh well there's a tie into uh, our interview and we'll cover this again during the interview uh it looks as though uh, microteak um routers are a significant part of this uh, botnet, and they also are what was involved in a lot of the uh, slingshot uh, compromises. Uh, We'll talk about that in a bit, but let me ask you this. If you're trying to protect yourself, you know, you're like your home connection, um, it it strikes me that Microsoft is doing a reasonable job of sending you updates to protect your uh, uh, computer, uh, um, but there's very little updating and securing of your router and it looks as though jumping to the route to jumping from the router to the computer ain't that hard.
2: Yeah, most of those home gateways are a total disaster. The only one I recommend these days is Eero because they actually are supported. Um I used to be a big fan of the uh, Airport Extremes as well. But Apple seems to basically not care about that business anymore. So if I'm putting in a network these days, I'm paying the outrageous amount for Eero because I know they actually get support.
0: All right. Um, and, and uh, you know, uh, to cover a little bit more actual law, uh, 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 Judge Bates had a, an interesting decision in a case that I poo-pooed and that made yet turn out that, that I was right, because uh, uh, this was just a determination of standing by researchers who are challenging the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, uh, um, uh, excess of um, authorized access provisions, which make it a crime to access computers in excess of authority. Uh, um, and uh, they say, we have a First Amendment right to... <laughs> Violate the terms of services uh, terms of service of sites where we're trying to conduct public interest research and we can't do it without making up uh, uh, users and watching what happens to them mm-hmm. um, What would you say, Brian, are the takeaways from
3: that mm-hmm. uh, so uh, w- yeah, Judge Bates, first of all, did not throw out the case in his uh, his opinion, which came out about 10 days ago, uh, but he did narrow the scope of the uh, plaintiff's complaints uh, fairly considerably. Uh, he, In doing so, as you suggested, Stuart, he looked at the access provision of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, and he ruled along the way that his view of the access provision was considerably narrower than the plaintiffs were fearing, at least under the terms of their complaint, and which some other courts have held elsewhere in the country, there's not a, a agreed upon interpretation of the access provision. He basically said uh, the only time you could fall on the wrong side of the access provision is if you take steps that involve the access itself uh, that could uh, that exceed the terms of service. So using information that you get from a, a website in and of itself uh, is not a violation of access. It's the access itself. And here,
0: so what I, I want to. Point out that um, the plaintiffs here are uh, winning by losing. They now have a ruling that is basically binding on the Justice Department uh, that uh, uh, you can't be uh, prosecuted for using data in excess of, a, of the authority uh, if you were authorized when you first downloaded it. I,
3: I think that that's right. That might turn out to be the most significant part of this whole case. Uh, the, the one thing that's still on the table is where the plaintiffs are actually creating false personas to get access to data that's not available on the top level, where there's some sort of a screening mech- mechanism based on identity that allows you to get uh, more restricted data. And there the court has said, well, there may be an as-applied First Amendment issue uh, buried in there still.
0: So we'll see. Uh, that- this newly narrowed case will go forward. Uh, I thought it was silly to say I have a First Amendment right uh, to get access to private property because I'm, I want to report on it. Uh, but um, apparently, uh, uh, I think it was the uh, it was the Packingham case uh, from last term where the Supreme Court said you cannot uh, tell a sex offender that he can never use the Internet because it's a public forum. Uh, that's turning out to have a lot of application in cases like that, and, and uh, some of it's going to be quite a surprise, I think, both to the participants, uh, you know, the companies that have those uh, uh, sites, and um, uh, a, a, a whole variety of uh, uh, criminal uh, uh, applications as well.
3: Uh, I agree. The, the other noteworthy part about this opinion was that on page 32, the court managed to cite to two of the different Star Wars movies uh, showing the appropriate Blue Book citation and quoting uh, Star Wars 2 and Star Wars 4. I, I, know, I, I, I felt like he must have lost a
0: bet in which he had to cite them because otherwise it, it just sort of popped up. It's not like this was a Kaczynski opinion where he's going to cite to 42 of his favorite movies in one night uh, opinion. It just was, you know, there. Uh, yeah, it was odd. Okay. Um, a, other uh, stuff. SoftBank's getting a CFIUS workout. They got uh, uh, forced to do uh, uh, a mitigation agreement uh, in order to acquire an investment bank uh, or investment firm. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, no, no big surprises there. Uh, um, we've been talking about how much the – Conservatives believe that they're the victims of discrimination by uh, uh, Silicon Valley. I think I think they're probably right, but I, I thought it was fascinating that this woman who shot up YouTube also believed that she'd been demonetized uh, arbitrarily uh, uh, and felt strongly enough. That ultimately, you know, I'm sure she was pretty disturbed to kill herself over it. Uh, uh, it's uh, uh, it, it shows that in the long run this we don't have any customer service um, business model uh, from Silicon Valley is going to fail as people start to uh, wonder what is the motivation here. And indeed, in fact, the the Bates opinion is all about people who think that, uh, you know, uh, sneaky things are being done on LinkedIn uh, uh, to their applications uh, that are meant to discriminate against them. Um, And uh, as as people feel abused by the system and can't find anybody to talk to about it, uh, that's just gonna build ill will uh for Silicon mm-hmm. Valley for years. Uh um, oh, keeper. Uh Nick, this is this is terrific. Keeper, uh the uh, password security company that is famous for suing people who find security holes uh, in their uh, or who talk about security holes in their product had another one it wasn't a big one but they basically posted uh, their install uh, uh, code uh, and then made it publicly available if anybody wanted to download it and screw with it uh, um, so you know we can look for another libel lawsuit next week <laughs> Keeper, facepalm, losers. <laughs> okay, uh, and uh, stingrays are blanketing uh, DC. Um, uh, Nick, do you know why it is that hard to find them? I assume that some of these are legitimate uh, U.S. law enforcement uh, stingrays, and some of them are the Russians. Uh, I, and I would have thought it couldn't be that hard to find them, right? They're they're broadcasting. Actually, it's really hard
2: because what they are is just. There's so many potential cell towers that if you want to make a stingray yourself, all you have to do is take a femtocell, hack it so that you're a man in the middle because the femtocells have uh, bad security, and uh, that's your stingray. So the problem is is your phone works normally. It looks like any other cell phone and or any other cell tower. And so you really need to have a very accurate inventory of every cell power in D.C. to know which are cell towers, which are femtocells, which are stingrays. And then you have the deconfliction problem of, OK, you find a stingray. Is it D.C. police? Is it uh, DHS? Is it FBI? Is it FSB? You can't tell
0: okay well that you know, that is fascinating i uh, can, i would have thought that um the fbi would have made that a high counterintelligence priority but um uh, they uh, if they have they aren't talking about it uh, all right let's move on quickly cuz the fbi is going to be the first of the two stories that uh, uh Chris and Patrick worked on uh, that I want to talk about. Uh, uh, our guests for the interview today are Chris Bing and Patrick Howell-O'Neill of CyberScoop, who have had two really uh, good um, scoops or quasi-scoops. Um, uh, and um, uh, one, uh, Patrick is here by Skype. Uh, Chris is here in the studio. Uh, uh, first, let me ask you guys,
4: what the hell is CyberScoop? So that's, that's, a, <laughs> that's a good question. Um, CyberScoop was launched uh, about a little over a year ago. Uh, it's a publication by Scoop News Group, which has been doing reporting on the federal government and IT for about eight years. But I, I joined... Well, they do FedScoop, right? Yeah, they do FedScoop, StateScoop, EdScoop, all the scoops. Uh, and And so when they launched this product, they wanted to have a more broad focus beyond the federal government to look at national security, foreign affairs, basically all things that encompass cybersecurity. And so that's um, about the time that Patrick and I joined, and we've really hit the ground running. We're fortunate to have a good team, and we've been able to break some important stories.
0: Yeah, so the first story, uh, which I have not seen anywhere else uh, and still haven't seen a lot of pickup on it, uh, is um, a story that said that uh, – Senator Grassley, Senator Feinstein uh, are working within Senate Judiciary on a bill that is meant to address the going dark problem that the FBI has been complaining about, and that Silicon Valley has been busily denying can can be done because math. Um, and and as that. Um, Line of defense breaks down, uh, and no one thinks that th- it, this can't be done. It's a question of trade-offs. Um, it, it looks as though the FBI is making some progress with the Senate uh, Judiciary Committee. What, what
4: did you find out about that? Yeah, so um, we reported this last week. Essentially, there's an effort within DOJ led by uh, Rod Rosenstein, the Deputy uh, Attorney General, who has been passionate around this issue of going dark or uh, essentially overcoming the going dark issue, which is when um, aspects of an investigation um, cannot be pursued because data is encrypted, right? This is a, something that I think caught the most media attention uh, following the San Bernardino shootings, where one of the suspect's iPhones was uh, encrypted. It was an iPhone 5C, which led to a... Uh, pretty public and nasty PR battle between the FBI and Apple. Uh, At that time, uh, Feinstein was on the Senate Intelligence Committee with Richard Burr, who's the current chairman, and they were pushing forward a a bill somewhat similar to this one to mandate uh, what critics called backdoors in, in popular consumer products, whereby the law enforcement agencies could access customer data that's relevant to an investigation. That bill was never actually introduced. It was pretty widely criticized. Uh, and then following that, I believe it was last year, Senator Feinstein mentioned that she would like to, um, essentially revisit, uh, the idea of a bill and pursue it once again. And Grassley has, uh, similarly voiced interest in, in a potential bill. What we found was that staffers for, Senate Judiciary have been talking to lobbyists and other representatives of large tech companies to essentially get feedback for a potential bill. When the, uh, Well,
0: I, you know, I expect the most of the feedback is along the lines of, hell no, we hate it. Um, it but, of course, um, if you're working for a, a corporation, uh, there's a point at which you have to say, Okay, that's not working. Instead, we should say, we should start to try to steer the direction of the bill. Do you get the sense that that's what's happened?
4: To some degree, yes. I think one of the companies need to look at that's, its relationship with the government has been very complex and dynamic is Microsoft. If you recall earlier this year, um, Thomas Bossard mentioned Brad Smith's name when describing the WannaCry attribution decision. Uh, Microsoft is obviously an important player in any encryption debate, given the products that they offer and the encryption that they use. And uh one of the large organizations that it came to our knowledge that has been speaking with Senate Judiciary, which is Chamber of Commerce, declined to comment for our article, but obviously they've been representing Microsoft for a long time. To your point... Yeah, but they represent a lot of other people. They represent a lot of people, banks. exactly. they represent ISPs. They represent a lot of people that would be interested in this conversation, yes. for sure. I think this we're waiting i think right now in terms of congress they're waiting for the right time um, where a bill could be introduced and it's tenable and it makes sense director ray has also spoken about you know what a solution could look like he mentioned the idea of symphony which is a company that essentially offers um keys and escrow that could then be given over to law enforcement to then access data so i think this administration has shown a real desire to tackle this head-on, and I think the 10 companies realize that they should at least be at the table rather than just covering their eyes and ears.
0: So uh, what's your sense about inside the administration? Obviously, the Justice Department and the FBI are enthusiastic and on the record. Uh, in the past, um, NSA has said, well, we'll hold your coat. Uh, and um, uh, DHS and the Commerce Department have been kind of dubious about this. Uh, um, Do you get the sense that in this administration, the internal resistance to doing this, uh, which also, uh, I I guess I should say, uh, centered in some White House offices like the uh, uh, science advisor uh, and uh, the NEC, uh, which may not be quite the same players that they were in the Obama administration?
4: The biggest thing here is that it's really DOJ's game right now. DOJ, FBI, and specifically Senate Judiciary committee are the, the leading players. Obviously, a number of other agencies are involved in the discussions. But something we learned pretty early on in our story that we mentioned is that a lot of people still have not been consulted. Elements of DHS still know very little about what a bill could look like out of the committee. And, um, you know, it's still early on. A lot of people have barely been involved with the discussions. So there is obviously um, a lot of inspiration to move forward with a bill. But talk Still early on. So, I here's my
0: theory on this. Um, it, it, it has to do with the Trump administration. They, uh, uh, the Trump White House, is has its own fights and its own turmoil, uh, and it's almost all kind of. Internal to the, to the White House, uh, which means that there's no unified, disciplined, interagency process for secondary decisions. Which means that if you are an agency that knows exactly what it wants and is willing to go out there and do it until somebody says, stop it,
4: um, you can do it without worrying about the interagency. And my bet is that's exactly what's happening with justice. I think you might be right. I think objectively we can say, this organization has been quite disorganized in a lot of similar efforts, and we could be seeing that some of that today. Yeah. Okay.
0: All right. Um, so that was uh, sort of a, a story that came up uh, uh, quite recently. I wanted to go back and talk about the Kaspersky story um, in which they did an analysis of a, of an actor, a a cyber threat actor that they called Slingshot, which they said, they they hinted quite broadly, was the United States. Um, And you guys did a a story that uh, laid out in much more detail who you thought it was and uh, uh, what the impact might be.
4: Right. So I'll I'll sort of dive in first, and then Patrick will, will follow up on me with some more details. In early March, Kaspersky released a report following a threat actor, a threat group known as Slingshot. One of the things that we picked up on right away was the targeting pattern for this this malware campaign was largely in countries in Africa that had previously been a focus for counterterrorism operations. There was also mentioned in the report of similarities between Slingshot and two other APT groups, the Lamberts and Equation Group, which we've since largely found out, the public realizes, is really CIA and NSA operations, right? Um, so given the overlap, given the area where it was focused, and given that it had been active since at least 2012 based on Kaspersky's analysis, we started thinking, hey, we should be looking at this a little bit more closely. Um, we spoke to current and former intelligence officials who ultimately were able to tell us and sort of uh, paint a picture of this expansive cyber espionage operation for counterterrorism purposes that was run out of SOCOM, specifically by JSOC, and it was done to ultimately identify terrorists on the ground. Hmm. Uh, Patrick, what can you add to that?
5: I think one of the interesting things that this uh, did here was kind of spark a a conversation around the industry among people who are following this about what the responsibility is of um, cybersecurity companies when they come across... Uh, first of all, nation-state activity in general, but more specifically counter-terrorist uh, operations. And I think that it's an interesting but often not talked about uh, aspect of cybersecurity research because you do come across uh, these instances where uh, there are boots on the ground, uh, there are lives at risk. Uh, that's what the current and former uh, U.S. intelligence officials told us. Um, and so it, it kinda got a really interesting conversation going, um, where people uh a lot of people feel let's say different ways, but there are definitely companies out there that actively when they come across things like this, do not uh publicize it in their annual, you know, Cancun party. Um, and then the other thing obviously is the background, the context of the Kaspersky uh US, you know, uh fight uh controversy. Um, and this comes in the middle of what is basically a massive, you know, federal government-wide incident response where they're kind of trying to clean out uh, all the Kaspersky code, which is just a huge task in the middle of multiple lawsuits. Um, and in the middle of – in that lawsuit, then there's the whole fight about whether Kaspersky says the uh, – you know – because Percy's big contention is that there is no Russian spying going on, um, and the U.S. contention, I think the most important one, is all you have to do is look at Russian laws. It's not really something secret. It's not really something covert. It's just the Russian laws that show that you are obligated to help out uh, intelligence agencies. So that's the kind of background that's necessary, I think, to understand this.
0: Yeah, let me see how I can put, pull them together. I would have thought if I if, if I were in the government uh, and uh, I had a uh, uh, cyber espionage infrastructure uh, and a um, security company that was responsible for uh, uh, you know, the, the elaborate and sophisticated antivirus uh, uh, protection came to me and said, we found your infrastructure. We're going to have to block it. Uh, because that's what we do. We, we block attacks that, that compromise, uh, computers and it may be your infrastructure this week, but it could be anybody's next week. Uh, I think I'd probably say, okay, I understand that's your job. It, you know, shame on me for getting caught. Uh, it's very different when somebody says, uh, or doesn't tell you, and then decides to write a big report, essentially doing their marketing out of how cool they are to have broken your infrastructure. Um, it, it's, it's perfectly understandable that the US government would uh, view the first as unfortunate, but maybe inevitable, and the second as unforgivable.
4: I think this is a good point. So Uh, Eugene Kaspersky, the the founder of Kaspersky Lab, spoke to Australian press, I believe it was last week, who asked him about our reporting regarding Slingshot, and his response was essentially, look, RAV is threat agnostic. He used some sort of metaphor around like catching a fish that knows different languages. (laughs) I'm not really sure what he meant there. But the point there is that he was saying his AV will catch anything, but... Uh, in that response, you know, it, there's a big difference between, as you put it, Stuart, uh, an AV catching a threat and publicizing a report with um, TTPs, which will then out that actor from being able to do activity throughout the region. So, you know, I, I don't – those are two big differences. Uh, the other thing I was
0: struck by uh, looking through his report, he said we found 100 incidents of this, mostly running on individual Individual machines, right? You know, a terrorist in uh, Yemen running his own home uh, machine, uh, getting compromised because he's got a router that's been compromised. Uh, um, And I thought to myself. You know, it's sort of hard to make the argument that you are um, solving the world's problems by publicizing this if there are only a hundred people in your entire network that you have found to have the problem. But uh, if there's a case for quietly just um, blocking it, you would have thought that this would have, would have been that case. Uh, and so there has to be an element of kind of up yours to this report.
4: Yeah, I think some people caught that who reacted to our story. You know, the con- the context is king here, as Patrick was describing. The report comes literally as a lawsuit is ongoing in the district court between DHS and Kaspersky Lab, right? So, you know... uh former intelligence officials who we spoke with said that the impact of something like this, a public report, would cause a lot of the infrastructure to go down, if not the entire operation. And so, in terms of the actual impact on the ground, we have to believe it was, it was pretty significant.
0: Okay. So, did, did you talk to anybody about the, uh, the legal consequences of this? Uh, uh- you know, a lot of loss, a lot of companies are getting sued, Twitter and others, uh, um, for uh, uh, material assistance to terrorism because they allowed ISIS or Al Qaeda operatives to recruit on their network. Uh, um, I wonder if there isn't a certain amount of liability or risk of a lawsuit against Kaspersky. Uh, for material assistance to the terrorists whose um, uh, systems are no longer being compromised and whose acts of terrorism are now therefore facilitated by that, um, strikes me as at least a risk uh, uh, that Kaspersky might not have thought about.
4: Yeah, I think this is a good question, but my immediate thought with that is for that lawsuit to exist, the U.S. government needs to formally come out and confirm all of our reporting, confirm that those were their implants, and they're just simply not going to do that. Yeah, that would be good for you. Uh, uh, You know, the Pulitzer waits. Uh, uh, um, So so far, this is all just anonymous sources, uh, uh, but I assume multiple anonymous sources. We Yes, we had a significant amount of sourcing for this article, as one would need to have, and we feel that our rea- the reaction to the story, the comments by Eugene, and comments that we've received since then have confirmed a lot of what we reported. Let me ask you
0: one other question. I, um, a- I have a question too. Okay, go ahead, Nick.
2: I have a damage assessment question. Um, the difference between doing it privately and doing it publicly, I'm not sure if that would have a significant impact, given the AV systems generally uh share a lot of information. Um, so Kaspersky would block it,
0: but so would all the other major ones. They, they, so they would still all be, have the infrastructure keying, damage. They'd be keying off each other's signatures, is that what you're saying?
2: Yeah, and it's more than that. There's there's formal information sharing where they share malcode samples, etc. Um, it's a remarkably cooperative community. But the other question is, and I don't know if any of your sources address this, you really burn three things. When something like this happens, you burn the exploits, but those get burned anyway. And let's face it, those micro tick routers are such a POS that you can keep poning them. Um, you burn the instance of the malcode that it's now detectable, but that's easy to substitute because it's the halting problem. And finally, you burn attribution. So now your, no, your malcode infrastructure is no longer non-attributable, but... I wonder how much the latter matters to SOCOM. Yeah, you uh, can now attribute that uh, SOCOM's looking at your computer, but, well, uh, we're attributing that to with a hellfire down your throat.
0: yes that's true that's right uh hellfire does sort of uh uh, leave a signature
5: i think they usually do the hellfire a couple of miles away from where the computer is to try and uh (laughs) confuse confuse the attribution just slightly
0: oh so Um, they don't actually use wi-fi as the targeting signal
5: yeah um well so to your point um just just a slight thing that was mentioned uh by some of the sources what is that you know. And, and by some people in industry is that it's to go back to what was emphasized to me was really the, the people on the ground. And as far as timing goes, the the companies that, uh, you know, are relatively more cooperative with um, with certain governments on, on counterterrorism operations, are more than anything giving heads up uh, as to what's going on, as opposed to dropping a bomb and then all of a sudden burning infrastructure and then leaving the folks uh, on the ground or the operations that may be um, you know ongoing uh, all of a sudden with a big question mark. Um, so that was one of the things that kind of got emphasized to me as far as uh, how it works in other contexts, as opposed to you know fixing it uh, quietly.
0: I wonder also. That, that's a very good point. that it, just having 48 hours to pull out uh, it has a lot of value. Uh, uh, but I also wonder whether in the long run, these information sharing deals across um, uh, borders of real um, cyber uh, conflict are going to be sustainable. I, I just wonder how long people are going to feel comfortable sharing information with Kaspersky and how long Kaspersky is going to feel comfortable sharing information with people who are uh, uh working for for the US uh, uh government. Uh, uh I wonder if that that could all fall apart over time. I'm I'm guessing we don't share a lot of information um with some of the Chinese uh, uh companies uh is it and a couple of others. Tencent. Uh, yeah, Tencent, yeah. Uh, I, I they are late enough
4: to the party that they just never may have been admitted. So I will plug another CyberScoop story. Uh, I believe it was last year we reported that the Cyber Threat Alliance, which is run by Michael Daniel, the former White House cybersecurity coordinator, um, essentially blocked Kaspersky from joining the Cyber Threat Alliance. If you're not familiar with what the Cyber Threat Alliance is, it is a um, collaborative organization that combines uh, these different threat intelligence and AV companies together to share threat intelligence and uh, when Kaspersky approached Daniel and the organization, based on our previous reporting, they were essentially pushed aside and not necessarily taken seriously. And I think this speaks to uh, concern that, that Stuart mentioned, which is the balkanization of cyber threat data, right? We have this very valuable um, commoditized intelligence, and it's not wild to see a future in which countries hold this very closely and are not sharing it across borders. A great example of this is, we also reported recently that um, some of the best Chinese vulnerability researchers were discouraged from attending a conference in Canada, Pone to Own. And this I point... Was, by the Chinese government. By the Chinese government. Uh, we're not necessarily sure if it was the Chinese government or their employers uh, exactly who told them, but it's a broader effort in China to hold... Zero-day information closer to the country, given the understandable value of yeah. this type of information. It, 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 it is, unfortunately, in everybody's interest
0: to share less data than, than we may be sharing now. Last question. Um, this was a, a very sophisticated uh, uh, tool uh, set of TTPs uh, and uh, not directly associated with the usual government suspects. Um, to what extent do you see SOCOM's capabilities as independent of cyber commands? Uh, uh, is this just, they had the money, they went out and uh, uh, purchased this capability and it has
4: nothing to do with cyber command? Or is this a indirect m- measure of cyber commands own capabilities? So this is a great cr- question that we sort of grappled with and um, you know, A book that we looked at throughout, and I have to mention here, is Relentless Assault by Sean Naylor, who's now a national security reporter with Yahoo. Uh, I think to, to get to this question, SOCOM had a ton of money and growth in the post-September uh, 11th climate, right? There's been a lot of reporting around... Uh, just how much funding went to SOCOM and their ability to build new tools and capabilities during that time frame. I
0: thought they were Obama's favorite
4: military uh, uh, unit uh, I, by far. I, I think they were. And so to some degree from our reporting, we saw SOCOM essentially build out this unit called uh, CNOS, uh, Computer Network Operations something. And essentially this unit was involved with uh, essentially human involved cyber operations on the ground to collect intelligence. Right. So whether that's directly involved with slingshot is sort of a question that we were trying to answer. Um, But at the same time, something that we've noticed just historically is that there is a meshing of TTPs across these different threat groups that are associated with the U.S. government, whether it's Equation Group, which is believed to be NSA, the Lamberts, which is believed to be CIA, or Slingshot, which is now, um, as we've reported, tied to SOCOM and JSOC. There's a there's a meshing of all these different capabilities. And so you can certainly see talent share, because there's a limit of talent and funding across the federal government, to be honest, when it comes to developing these offensive tools. So um, I would not be surprised at all if uh, CIA talent, NSA talent was involved in these SOCOM missions as well.
0: All right. Well, we always ask our uh, guests if they have any um, news stories or uh, events that they want to plug. Uh, uh, so, Patrick, Chris, anything you want to tell us that you've got that you're sure is coming out soon?
4: Patrick?
5: Uh, I guess it's my uh, official duty to plug San Francisco Cyber Talks, <laughs> which is uh, our event coming up. It's uh, adjacent to RSA, but better than RSA, and has a bunch of uh, really good government and industry speakers on uh, cyber on cybersecurity. Rob Joyce, Jeanette Manfra, um, and so if you're in SF for RSA um, and don't want to have your brain melt all five days for RSA, come check it out on Monday.
0: Okay, it'll be Monday, the Monday of our, that RSA, more or less, kicks off.
5: A week from now, yeah.
0: Yep. Okay. Thanks to Chris Bing. Thanks to Patrick uh, Howell O'Neill and to uh, CyberScoop, uh, a new player in uh, cyber uh, uh, law and cyber espionage and cyber attack uh, journalism. Uh, Thanks also to Jennifer Quinn Barabinoff, to Brian Egan and to Nick Weaver. This has been Episode 211 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, Don't forget, we are seeking a part-time intern at our Washington, D.C. offices to work just on the podcast uh, probably 10 or 15 hours uh, if you go to uh, com slash careers I have now persuaded myself that you can find it uh, on that very page uh, the announcement and uh, you can make an application if you're interested uh, uh and if you want to send us names for people that we should be interviewing, please do that. Um, uh, if you uh, if you had sent us Chris and Patrick's uh, name, you would be getting one of our coveted cyber law podcast mugs, which they're both getting. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, we welcome other suggestions. Uh, uh, send them in, and we will put them on the uh, on the air. Uh, uh, and we hope that you'll join us uh, once again, then and other times. For, uh, insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.